0: This is Drummer's Resource podcast session 357 and you're listening to the Daniel Glass show only on Drummer's Resource. This is it
1: right here. Uh-huh. Then you got to add some of the little tricks. Ah.
0: Uh, uh, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming and life philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey, everybody. It is Daniel. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. And today I want to talk about a particular little corner of the world that I inhabit. It is a jazz corner, and in fact, it is at a place... That is called the Jazz Corner of the World, which uh, otherwise is known as the Birdland Jazz Club, Birdland. And for those of you who are into jazz, uh, you are going to know right off the bat, Birdland is a a name uh, associated with greatness. It is one of the great jazz clubs of the world. And um, I'm very happy and fortunate to say that uh, I get to go every week to Birdland, every Monday night, which is what I've been doing for the last seven years or so. And uh, I'm part of a really terrific show. I get to play a lot of great music, meet a lot of great people, and be part of something I consider to be very special. Um, now, how did I get involved with Birdland? Well, uh, well, before we get to how I got involved with Birdland, I'm just going to share with you uh, what we're going to be doing today in this episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about my experiences of moving to New York and, uh, you know, getting involved with the scene here. I lived in LA for about 20 years, and in 2010, I uh, moved, I crossed coasts and ended up in New York City. And one of the amazing things that happened to me uh, shortly after arriving is that I I hooked up this gig, which I've been doing ever since. Um, But also, I think for those of you who don't live in New York, haven't maybe been to New York, don't know about New York jazz clubs. Um, I'm going to introduce you to Gianni Valenti, who is the owner of Birdland. We're going to have a conversation about the history of the club and um, sort of the place that it holds in New York City. Uh, it, it, for those of you that may not know, Birdland, the reason it is called Birdland is that it is named after Charlie Parker, whose nickname was Yardbird, uh, a name nickname he picked up very early in his career. I'm not sure of the exact story, but something to the effect of um, the, he was on tour uh, and he loved chicken and somewhere outside where they were staying, found him outside running around trying to chase down a chicken. Uh, so he got the nickname Yardbird. I'm not sure if those of the exact details, but it's something like that. In any case, Charlie Parker was so influential in the evolution of bebop and the development of jazz into what today we call straight-ahead jazz. Um, you know, he was such an important pioneer in in in, in the evolution of that music that um, in 1949, when this club first opened, they named it after Charlie Parker uh, and literally called it Birdland. And, of course, Birdland has had... Um, a famous, you know, weather report. Weather report wrote a song called Birdland. Birdland is referenced everywhere, um, and as you'll see, uh, the current owner of Birdland, who's owned it now for thirty-two years, uh, has done a lot to spread um, the word about Birdland across the world. He's he's doing some pretty amazing things, uh, opening another Birdland in in Australia and um, creating. Mini miniature Birdlands on jazz cruises, and uh, right now he's actually opening a second room downstairs in the basement below Birdland, which will be more of a, a an off-Broadway theater. Um, so it'll be called the Birdland Theater. So lots of cool stuff going on. In any case, before I get too far ahead of myself, I just want to sort of tell you the story of how I got this gig, because it's kind of a cool story. It's a cool New York story, and it is a testament to Uh, you know, some of the other more motivational things I've talked about in this podcast uh, on this show related to preparation and development and getting ready for things that you may not know yet what they are. So, I will put in the show notes a link back to my, um, I'm gonna write that down right now, Uh, a link back to my uh, preparation podcast, because this is sort of a testament to what happens when you spend a lot of time preparing, even if, again, you don't know exactly what you're preparing for. But then suddenly, the opportunity shows up, you say, aha, this is what I've been honing my skills for, and you jump in, and you really work it, and great things come from that. So, let's step back a little bit. In 2010, um, which is about eight years ago now from when I'm recording this podcast. I'm recording this in in the depths of winter in January. I moved to New York in April of 2010. Uh, I'm now in January of 2018. Uh, I moved here for a number of reasons. I had been in Los Angeles for about 20 years. Uh, Things were going very well there, but I was sort of feeling a little bit like I was spinning my wheels. I was doing the same things over and over and over again, which were fine. I was working a lot. I was, you know, I I have nothing against LA. I wasn't miserable or unhappy there. But I happened to fall in love uh, with a woman that is, who is now my wife. I um, always felt drawn to New York. I always imagined living here and the opportunity of being in this relationship opened up a door uh, to, to come to New York and, you know, actually be here on a a full-time basis. I had been through New York many, many times as a touring musician. I had spent a lot of time here. I knew a lot of people here, so I felt somewhat comfortable. And also my goal in coming here wasn't necessarily to, uh, you know, start all over again as a freelance musician and make it as a freelancer. I had been working as a freelancer for years in California, and as much as I enjoyed that, I sort of felt like I was at a season in my life where I wanted to really put my time and energy energy into growing my brand, you know, which, which sort of, for lack of a more exciting name is, is what I call Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator, because it really, these days, I have three, uh, three careers in one, three separate careers that I'm sort of working all at the same time. And of course, this podcast is part of growing that brand and making people aware of, of all the things that I do in the world and sharing a lot of the knowledge that I've, you know, gained over the years. In any case, I moved to New York, and of course, you know, I wasn't going to stop playing drums just because I was growing the brand. Uh, but it's pretty intimidating in New York. Uh, you know, I always think like if you are the best at what you do, whether it's playing jazz or uh, it's working in finance or it's being an actor, or, you know, any if you're the best at what you do, you go to New York City. And if you're aggressive and a type A personality who's an overachiever and ambitious, and you want to really, you know, knock heads with the best of the best, you go to New York City. So when you come to New York City, it's an incredibly competitive environment here, uh, but it's also incredibly exciting. There's so much amazing energy. There's people... involved in every possible kind of, you know, music, if we're thinking in terms of music, every kind of music imaginable, and doing it at the highest levels, and really pushing the boundaries. And that's one of the things that, you know, I love about New York, and it's one of the things that makes it challenging to be in New York. So I was, you know, trying to find my place, and of course, my skill set is playing a lot of historical styles, and, you know, really swinging, you know, really being able to make, make the time swing. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, teaching about it, and playing music that swings. And uh, I know that's sort of a broad category, but that's where my head is at. So about six months in, a, a good friend of mine here in New York, who I've known since the late 90s, he said, well, why don't you come down on a Monday night to Birdland? And they have this gig down there called Cast Party. And I thought, Cast Party, that's interesting. Why do they call it Cast Party? Well, he said, well, it's kind of an open mic and it's run by a couple of guys who um, used to play with Liza Minnelli and, or were playing with Liza Minnelli at this time. And uh, they they basically, it's a, tr- you know, it's a duo, piano and bass, and there's a host who's really funny and really engaging named Jim Caruso, the piano player's name's Billy Stritch, uh, and um, they uh, have people... Sit in. And I thought, okay, whatever. And he's like, Why don't you come in and sit in? I thought, okay, great. You know, I'll I'll network a little bit. I'll sit in. We'll see what happens. So I get down to Birdland on a Monday night. My friend, friend is there, and um, he says, you know, uh, hey Daniel, uh, go go ahead. You know, it's your time to sit in. I met the host, I go up, I sit in. Amazingly, and I should mention if I haven't, that there was no regular drummer on this gig. They, they had sort of tried drummers, the, the gig at this point had been going for about eight years. And they'd tried different drummers, and nothing really worked, and nobody was really happening. And, you know, it, it, so it was just a duo. The house band was a duo. So I sat in. Now, luckily, as fate would have it, the same song that I sat in, uh, I sat in with a, Uh, Brazilian guitar player, a wonderful woman Brazilian guitar player named Denise Reyes. I didn't know her name at the time. I didn't know who she was. But she gets up, and I get up, and she proceeds to play this kind of up-tempo samba thing. And it was the perfect vehicle. I grabbed my brushes, and we just locked in, the piano player, uh, the bass player, myself, and Denise. And it was like magic. So we killed it. People were loving it. And the host said, great, stay up there, you know. And so I ended up staying up for the rest of the night and playing with all the rest of the artists, having a great time. And they said, Jim said to me after the show, you did great. You know, if you want, come back next week. Um, We can't pay you, uh, but we'll give you dinner and drinks and, uh, you know, come on back. You did great. I thought, sure, Monday night, New York City, no problem. So I went back. And I literally just kind of became the thing that wouldn't leave. And I just came every Monday. I was having a great time. They were loving me. And before you know it, within a week or two, Jim had hired me to play at Town Hall, which is one of the beautiful, uh, classic venues. It's a little bit like Carnegie Hall. And to do, uh, they did sort of a bigger night of cast party at Town Hall. And now, Uh, I'm part of the house trio, and the guests that night included Liza Minnelli and Cheetah Rivera, you know, Cheetah being one of the most famous Broadway stars. Uh, She was one of the originals uh, in West Side Story, and a whole cavalcade of, (laughs) of really amazing people. And what I began to learn about Cast Party is that it is an open mic night, but it's really, they call it an extreme open mic night, that's sort of the moniker. It's really more like a show. And many now, over the last Almost eight years that I've been doing this gig, or seven—I don't know—seven and a half years. Uh, a lot of friends have come, a lot of guests, a lot of you know people I know come through town. They, I put them on the the list. They come check out the the night, and it's just amazing the the quality of people that we that we get. So you know, although it's an open mic night, it's not your 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 grandma's coffee house open mic night with with some kid twiddling on the acoustic guitar. We get people like. Uh, Barry Manilow, Liza Minnelli, Michael Feinstein, John Pizzarelli, the saxophonist Dave Cause is in all the time. And we have, art, uh, you know, pop stars. Art Garfunkel has come in. Kenny Loggins has come in. Actors have come in. Jonathan Price. Uh, comedians, Weird Al Yankovic, Lisa Lampanelli co- used to come in quite a bit. Country singers uh, like Larry Gatlin, uh, heavy metal singers, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, has come in and sat in with the band, and Matthew and Gunner uh, Nelson, uh, you know, Ricky Nelson's sons from the band Nelson back in the '90s. And this is just a tiny list of what I could think of off the top of my head. But it, what's so cool about this gig is that you don't know who's coming in. We have no idea. There's no rehearsal. There's no setup. The gig is usually at least two and a half to three hours in length. And, you know, it's Birdland. It is one of the great jazz clubs of the world. And I feel like I am, I gotta be on my toes every single week. And we have to, we make up arrangements on the spot. And you have to remember, you know, there is no, there's no break here. It's a, it's a, they used to do it at the first, at the very beginning, they would take a break and a lot of people would leave. So they said, well, let's forget the break. And if people wanna leave, they can leave and people kind of come in and go out all night long. But, we consistently, we usually play for at least 20 different guests. And it's not just singers. People come up and great instrumentalists will come up and play with us, uh, you know, jazz players, whatever. Uh, we we back up comedians. We back up ventriloquists. We back we do a lot of stuff with great tap dancers. Some of the best tap dancers in New York come, and they have a, a piece of plywood that they put down, and the dancers, you know, they call it a tap floor. Um, we've had uh, uh, jugglers. We've had... Balloon, uh, you know, people that do weird things with the balloons. Uh, we've had hula hoop dancers. Um, we've had, you know, it's, 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 it's a crazy night, but generally the people that sit in are the best at whatever it is that they do. Extremely talented people. And over time, in particular, I, I should mention that even though I've given all these big names, the primary people that sit in a cast party are Broadway uh, folk. Um, the reason they call the gig cast party, I don't think I ever finished this thought, is that Monday nights in the Broadway world is traditionally the nights when the shows are dark, when they take their one night a week off. And so they began the doing cast party essentially in Liza Minnelli's living room. Billy Stretch, the pianist is Liza's musical director or has been was for about 25 years. Liza's mostly retired now. Uh, And they just sort of had their friends from the Broadway world come and sing songs around the piano. And then they moved it to a club. And I I don't know exactly when it came to Birdland, maybe eight or nine years ago, it it got its current home at Birdland. And now the show's been running for 15 years. I've been there for about half of its lifespan. And if you are into Broadway or cabaret, cabaret is another kind of Big scene in New York that doesn't really exist in a lot of other places, Um, and it is there's it's a whole world here. Uh, If you are in the cabaret or Broadway world, say you're you you played um, you know in the touring production of Wicked or Jersey Boys in Australia or in London or in continental Europe or in South America, when you come to New York, cast party is a destination for you, and we get people every week from all over the world literally all over the world uh, coming up and sitting in. And so it's just a, it's a, it's a real rush. It's a, it's a real challenge. You know, we'll go from having to play a country tune to a pop tune to a rock tune. Uh, people are supposed, supposed to bring charts, and they generally do for the piano player. Or maybe they'll bring a chart for the piano player and the bass player. But almost no one brings a chart for the drummer. And so we get, you know, very obscure Broadway songs. Uh, I don't, some of these songs, I mean, I know a fair amount about Broadway and, and, and uh, musicals, but we get a fair number of tunes that are, uh, um, not only do I not know the song, I don't know the show from which the song has come. I've, I've learned a lot in the last few years. And and these are often challenging songs. They are songs that are in odd times. They're in songs that have breaks. And so a lot of the time, what I have to do is telegraph the um, the piano player uh, who who is a great musical director. We have two or three piano players, although Billy Stritch is the primary piano player. Another guy named Ted Firth is usually there as well uh, as, as sort of the... Um, the first call sub when Billy can't do it. And they're both some of the top musical directors in New York. So I'm learning just a tremendous amount of skills in not only negotiating songs that I don't know, you know, and, 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 you know, you're expected. This is what we do. We create a world within each song. And so, you know, this is something that I, talk to my students about. I consider this night at Birdland for me to be like going to the gym. In other words, I've got to keep my focus for two and a half, three hours every Monday, often with no break at all, and singer after singer after performer after performer. You got to hit the reset button after every song and be ready to go. And you're at one of the top jazz clubs in the world. You never know who's in there. And so many amazing opportunities have come my way because of my performances at Cast Party. For example, I think it was in 2015, um, this guy runs up to me at the end of the night. You were incredible. I loved your show. The way you play the drums is amazing. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I get a lot of really nice compliments. He says, I'm from Israel, and uh, I want you to come and be the special guest with our big band in Haifa. Which is a city in the north of Israel. And interestingly, when I got out of college, I spent a year living in Israel. This was back in the late 80s. And um, so I ended up going to Israel for two weeks uh, as a result of this, getting sort of, I played with this, you know, number one, one of the big, best big bands in, in Israel. I was this featured guest, all because of what I had done on the stage at Birdland. So you never know what is going to happen at a place like that. And that's one of the great things about being in New York is that when people come to New York, they pay attention. You know, the performers in New York are so strong. That is why so much culture emanates from New York and why people go, you know, people like these Israeli uh, big band leaders go to New York to find talent to bring to Israel. And, you know, this is is one of the, the great things about being in New York. So, Um, just, you know, not, not to go too far into it, but the, 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 this is a really, it's a great gig. It's a fun gig. It's a very challenging gig. It keeps me on my toes and it, and it really helps me to develop, to continue to say, to stay tough, to be able to negotiate lots and lots of new music continually to have to sight read what charts I do get to have to be musical. And the other thing I want to point out about doing this gig is that it is, very challenging in terms of volume level. I always say to my students, the two things that drummers hate most are playing softly and playing slowly. And, you know, this gig certainly challenges you on the dynamics level. It is a, um, a gig that I start playing at mezzo piano on every song, and then I see where I need to go from there. And often it's quieter, you know, so um, one of the things now I actually get hired for a lot in New York is my ability to burn at very, very low levels, very, very quiet levels. And I've learned how to negotiate my gear and be able to stay relaxed so that I can really bring a lot of life to the music, but at very, very soft levels. And again, if, if you're a drummer and you can play softly, you will, you will be employed. If you're a drummer and you can play slowly and you can find a pocket in those places, you increase your chances of, of getting employed. So, you know, um, again, this, this gig has been a real blessing for me. And uh, it's really increased and my depth in terms of also being able to play lots and lots of different styles. And I mentioned before, we'll get a country song, we'll get a rock song, we'll get standards, we'll get new musical stuff, which is more sort of rock and roll oriented. We'll get a hip hop thing, we'll get a funk thing, and then we'll get like, five versions of, you know, fly me to the moon type of uh, great American songbook things all in a row. And that's another kind of a challenge. What if you have four medium tempo swings in a row? How are you going to make each one of those sound and feel a little bit different? So again, I don't want to, to take all the time on this podcast because I want to get to the to the really terrific interview we did with Johnny with Valenti. Um, he's going to share the history of Birdland, the story of Charlie Parker, and how in 1980, he was able to, uh, I'm sorry, I think it was 1985, he was able to to resurrect the club that had been basically extinct for for 20 years. And it's a really great story. So without further ado, I present my conversation with Johnny Valenti about the great Birdland Jazz Club. All right, I am here with the great Johnny Valenti, owner of the Legendary Birdland Jazz Club. Johnny, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for the introduction.
0: Yes, indeed. And uh, it's been a great honor and a pleasure for me to to be a part of the Birdland scene for the last bunch of years uh, on Monday nights. And uh, yeah, man. So So thanks for joining us here.
1: It's great to have this chance to chat with you.
0: Yeah. So I guess I want to... You know, it's sort of interesting. Uh, you first bought the club or reintroduced the club in
1: 1985. Is that right? Correct. 1985. We're going strong. 32 years later.
0: Amazing. And what what uh, what prompted you to do that, or wh- how did that work, considering that Birdland had not been in existence for you know as an entity for 20 years?
1: Well, that's correct. Uh, Birdland opened in 1949. Unfortunately, after Charlie passed, uh, Morris Levy more or less gave up on the club, and it tried to run without anyone really directing it till 1965, when it closed its doors. And in 1983, I had a restaurant on the Upper West Side, um, and one of the patrons that came in, I was introduced to her. Was Charlie's widow, Doris Parker. We became dear friends, and over a course of time, uh, she would always want to uh, reopen Charlie's Bandstand. And I found a location, and with her help, here we are, 32 years later.
0: That's uh, that's amazing, man. And uh, so she she essentially had the the rights to the estate, and that's how you were able to use the name and. Charlie Parker's likeness, you know, I mean, it's not, you're not necessarily using his likeness.
1: Exactly. And getting into the legal uh, positioning of it all was we needed to make sure that we were able to secure the name, the logo uh, that was in 1949. It became dormant for almost 20 years. So because she had of course, she was Charlie's widow. She had some stake in what Charlie at once had a part of. So, because of her involvement, we were able to secure the rights.
0: Yeah. Now, I know you as a, as a jazz proprietor, you know. Uh, but um, what's your background musically? Are you, did you grow up listening to jazz? Uh, what, what you know? How, how did how do you uh, how were you drawn to the well, idea just, of opening a jazz
1: club? <clears throat> That's very funny because yes, I grew up listening to jazz and really didn't take to it. My father was a player. He was a saxophone clarinet player. And as young kids growing up in an Italian home, my sisters played piano and uh, the four boys would alternate playing sax and clarinet lessons every night. Uh, And it was something that I really did not enjoy. To be very frank i was into other types of music so practicing on saxophone and clarinet i also became a bass player i liked the uh precision fender bass. so uh, he he frowned on that but yes i grew up with a lot of music around uh, and as i mentioned jazz wasn't my first choice of music but as you can tell over the years I've gravitated to jazz and it's become my life for the last 30 some odd years
0: isn't that amazing that uh often you know the the things that that we think you know for, same for me actually as a as a young drum student I went to a teacher who tried to get me to play jazz and swing and bossa novas and and stuff and all I wanted to do was rock you know and I never in my wildest dreams thought that this is how I'd end up making my living. So it's, uh, it's, it's ironic how things kind of come full circle, you know.
1: And the irony, the irony, I just, I hate to interrupt you. Was no, no. My father was an alto sax player. And he used to say to me, things go around in complete circle because I ended up owning a club. Made famous by a famous alto sax player.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's that's cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, he would look at me and go, "You see, you should have stuck with it." And I look at him and I go, "I'm I'm happy doing what I'm doing."
0: Yeah. So the the club was in eighty that that it was it was more uptown, right? The original location was kind of right around the corner from the, the famous Fifty Second Street block where a lot of clubs were. Correct.
1: That's correct. Uh, it was on 52nd and Broadway uh, uh, right now. It's still a, a venue. It's, uh, there, the space still exists because uh, I did make a walk through it. Wanting, I had never gone to the original Birdland while it was opened. So I always just wanted to feel the presence of it because of the history and, and just uh, what went on there. For those few years that it was a, alive and vibrant, and it was like—it's amazing when we think back of the artists, the shows that went on there in that short period of time, seventeen years.
0: Yeah, uh, it's incredible, and and uh, and so it still it still is a is it it's still a a, a restaurant or a bar or a music venue today?
1: Well, it's a gentleman's club at this time.
0: Aha. <laughs> Slightly, maybe a little different from jazz, has, but maybe not so much.
1: Right, it's, it still has a stage, and they play music. <laughs> right, <laughs> but the, right. But the performers on stage are a lot. I, I, I'd say they're more attractive than than some of the older jazz artists that played there.
0: Exactly, exactly. Cool. So, uh, when you when you uh, first reopened the club, and you, you opened it uptown. Uh, what what was your experience like? Were were people uh, you know, how did the public take to it? Were people oh, Birdland or you know, what what was the general reaction and the artists too?
1: Well, you know what it was a it was a learning it was a learning curve for me. I had to uh, dive in to the jazz business, uh, and with the help of Doris Parker. Doris Parker was very influential on a uh, personal level not a vested interest. Uh, I found the space uptown uh, that, we com- that we literally uh, renovated and made the Birdland happen with a stage bar and a, and a restaurant. And when we went uptown, uh, we found it uh, to be most receptive because of the artist. And I have to tell you that with Doris, I had the help of Max Roach who came to me uh, open arms and said, I'm here to help you, and Doris is here to help you, but you need to make a commitment to this. And I remember having lunch with both of them, and I said, well, you know what? I can only do this for 50 years. And he said, that's plenty. <laughs> and I, um, I remember going, uh, after we built, opening up uh, the booking of the artist, Uh, Doris would suggest people. Max would suggest people. uh, And it became a very popular place. Uh, But what I found difficult was the location. Uh, There wasn't really much parking on the Upper West Side on 105th Street. Uh, Accessibility was limited just to the subway. Most people, we didn't have walking traffic. We didn't have the hotels. So during that period of time that we were open there, I always had my eyes open, my ears pinned to the real estate of Times Square and the Midtown area knowing that I wanted to move back down here. But I have to say that the 10 years, so I had a commitment there for 10 years. I signed a lease and I was obligated. Even though there were spaces that came up in the middle of that 10-year period, I wasn't able to leave unless I wanted to pay the rent out full. And I had to live out the 10 years. And then when I found something within the last two years of that lease, where we are presently now, I began to make the transition. But as for what happened uptown, it became a great spot uh, for those that recognize jazz, not only emerging artists, but for for the artists, the seasoned veterans that we had. We had a good response and I learned a lot. And what I like is the fact that I had 10 years to grow and learn the industry that was new to me. I had Doris Parker Shore, I had Max Roach, I had many of the artists that she was friends with helping me. But I needed to feel comfortable. And that 10 years was a great stepping stone to where I am here today, feeling comfortable uh, in every aspect of the business, whether it's booking, managing, producing, or just being a host at the front door. So I was blessed in that sense that I wasn't thrown into the limelight in Times Square big time that it is now and not feeling secure with where i was at that time
0: fantastic that's that's a that's a really great point and uh i think i mean obviously you had been in the restaurant business but booking a a, a live entertainment venue adds a whole another layer to it you know obviously that uh sounds like it definitely would be a learning curve for anybody and and how fantastic that you had you know some of the some of the, the people that really were tied to Charlie Parker and to the origins of modern day jazz. You know modern day straight ahead jazz, uh, helping to connect you to the to the talent. You know I mean that's that's invaluable. I would think.
1: But I have to say, Daniel, that the connection with Charlie's drummer and with his widow uh, gave us the legitimacy to do Birdland. If I had just come up as a non-jazz player in the world and saw that, oh wow, this name, I could take this name, let me get to my lawyer and open it up, I don't think I would have had the uh, credibility within myself or within the community to be accepted as readily as I was knowing that sitting at the table with me during a show uh, 30 years ago was Doris Parker, or Red Rodney, or, you know, Roy Haynes, people that let, literally played with Charlie that were my friends. And we sat there and said, here we are. Charlie's bandstand is reopened. So it was very, very fortunate and uh, important.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. And so... um Maybe maybe you can say now just a little bit about where you moved in 96 where the club is now and and uh how you know what that bigger stage is on Times Square that you're talking about and and uh you know sort of it 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 really is become one of the uh if you're interested in jazz it is one of the must attend spots in New York City when you come to town I mean it was that way for me for sure when I when I didn't live here you know
1: Well I I got to tell you I was in Midtown taking care of business and was parked in a parking lot, which now is the Intercontinental Hotel. And as I was pulling out of the lot, because I was always around Midtown looking at prospective places that I thought to move to. And as I sat there, I saw this space and I go, wow, I've got a parking lot across the street. The subway's on the corner. I can see all the Times Square and Broadway theaters to my right, they're a hundred feet away. There are hotels on the corners. I go, this is a great spot. God, I wish I had this spot. So something in me, I I left the car, I told the attendant, I'll be right back. I walked in (coughs) and there was a fella with his hands, his head is in his hands, he's at the bar and they're going through these minor renovations and I go, is the owner here? And he goes, I'm the owner. And I go, this is a great spot. What are you doing here? He says, well, we were thinking of putting a restaurant here, but it's not working out. My partners are this and that, but I'm obligated. I go, well, if you're thinking of selling this, you got to give me a call. I left him my card. A week later, he came up to my restaurant on the Upper West Side and said, let's talk. And I came down and I finished the renovations. But the important part was... I was able to do the renovations according to where after 10 years in the business, I felt that a club should have and that what artists needed and what our patrons would look for in a club. So the biggest thing was for sight lines uh, and for comfort. And I just started right from there. And I think that we created uh, this is 22 years ago. I think we created a very good room because the only thing I ever had to change after opening night was a photo here or there on the wall. So I did my homework. I walked through this space at night when it was dark as a waiter, as a bartender, as a musician, as a guest, as a host. And I walked it and I walked it and I walked it till I felt it was comfortable. And then we started construction.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, you really have to, I think, as, as the owner, you, you have to ha- have worn all those hats or experienced the business from all those angles to see how everybody's going to see that that situation.
1: Well, that's a, that's, it's an important part because what I tried to do here, too, that was different from other jazz clubs that we had known in the past was not only did I create a jazz club, I dropped a restaurant in the middle of it. So we had two different things going on at the same time. And most jazz clubs were just places that you could grab a a cocktail, just sit back, have a beer, smoke a cigar. Here we created a whole different environment. We started with having come in, not only did you sit at the table and have a great dinner, then you'd hear some great music at the same time. Uh, So what we had to do is create an ambiance of service and making sure that it didn't interfere with the guests, making sure that the whole experience was enjoyable. And it's hard to pull off, but I was in the restaurant business, as you had noted earlier for many years, but I didn't want to give up the food aspect of everything that I had gained over the years. What I wanted to do is incorporate the food with the music. And most importantly, when I do go out of town and I consult, my biggest thing that I bring up to prospective people that are looking to get into this industry is this. Do you want a music venue that serves food or do you want a restaurant with music? My music is the primary source that we're looking at. And food is a, is a side thought. So to me, the stage becomes the star and the food is secondary. And this is what we had to do here. And as you've experienced, we've got very good food and it mixes well with great entertainment.
0: It's great. And one of the things I, I, you know, for people that maybe have not been to New York to see, uh, to, 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 to check out some jazz, you know, most people who are jazz fans, at some point, they'd make the pilgrimage to New York City. And what most people find when they go to a jazz club is, number one, they're cramped. Half the audience has its back to the stage. You have these long tables where people are packed in. You're sitting with strangers. And it's often very, very uncomfortable just because that's New York. You know, you got these small spaces. When you come into Birdland it's a completely different environment. You know, it's the stage. Some clubs, the stage is on the side of the, you know, the side of the place. It's not even in the center. It's not even featured where the audience is around it. And Birdland, uh, maybe you could explain. I mean, it's it's a really comfortable, you don't, you know, you don't get that cramped New York feeling. Like you said about Sightline. So maybe you can just kind of paint the picture for people uh, what the room at Birdland looks like.
1: Well, we... Set it up as an amphitheater. We put different levels in. I have two different levels, and the levels are no long, no higher than the person behind you being able to just see over your head. It's not like they're very high. They're one step and two steps up, and we're in a semicircle. And what I found was important for me is I could probably seat an extra hundred people in this room. I have a friend of mine that owns a jazz club a very famous club in the city that's smaller than my space. He sits 250 people. I sit 140. And what I always felt was I wanted people to come in and enjoy their evening and be comfortable. I didn't want them to come in and leave going, I'm never going to go back to there. It was uncomfortable. It was too crowded. I recently took a reservation for a young lady this past week to come in. And she asked me, she said, uh, are, will you be sitting us sitting uh, my husband and I with another group of people? And I said, no, you'll have your own table. And she said, oh my God, that's fantastic. Because we don't really feel that that's appropriate. If you're going to go out and have fun, you can be with your own group. We like to keep it that way. The sight lines that we have here, there's not a bad seat in the house. I feel that even at the bar, Sometimes people come in and wanna sit at the bar because it's also very comfortable. I I try not to uh, overcrowd any of the areas of the restaurant and I wanna make it comfortable because you're also having dinner. And I don't think that uh, it really makes for a good evening. If you're having dinner and the person next to you, his conversation's part of your conversation and it just doesn't work. I also like the fact that it's a smaller room that we can control our crowds that people listen to the artist. Uh, very few times do we ever have to quiet people down and it's become a great listening room as well as a great room for comfort and sight lines. And we have a great sound system. So in a nutshell, we're the best club in the world.
0: (laughs) Not going to get any argument from me on that one, man, for sure. Um, one other thing I want to point out about the club is that there are amazing photographs covering the walls from top to bottom and uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the history of those um and and what what you know what you how how you came upon that as a as a as a way of decorating the walls so to speak
1: yeah that's important because uh they become uh they become quite a uh an attraction to our guests they walk around. What I did do that uh, in the past other clubs may have, they took pictures of a lot of the great artists of the past and of the future, and they covered their walls with it. What I was set on doing was covering the walls with artists that performed for me on that stage. So everyone who's ever performed here, we photograph, we have a, house photographer that comes in, does every act of our headlining week, and acts, of course, on our off nights. And those are the artists that we put up on the wall. There are some on there that have left us, Oscar Peterson and Hank Jones and Tony Williams, people that were very dear and close to me, Ray Browns of the world. But most of the artists that are there now are artists that still perform for us, that Uh, have performed on this very stage and uh, are very close to us, not only musically, but as friends and their family to us. So having their pictures on the wall uh, is interesting for most people because they recognize everyone who's there, whether they've been the greats from the past that played for me or the emerging artists that have come up that are making headways today. And I think your picture's on the wall as well. Ben.
0: Oh, wow. All right. Well,
1: <laughs> you'll have to show me. I don't know. I'll have to show you. But, uh, the Monday Night Crew, I th- think, is up there.
0: Yeah, the Monday Night Crew. Or with,
1: you're with, with uh, Marilyn Mayer somewhere. I know that you're up there somewhere.
0: Wow. Oh, fantastic. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great honor, obviously, for, for anybody to be included on that on that wall, on that wall of fame, for sure. Um, you also, though, have some really cool uh, – I know when you come in the front door, you have some Charlie Parker uh, original kind of artifacts in there. Yeah. Is that right? Can you maybe you could talk about those.
1: Yeah, well, those were gifts from Doris. Those were albums that Charlie had that uh, he left. She had a lot of stuff that Charlie moved around a lot, as we know that Charlie was a character, and the things that she left at home. And she gave me those uh, – those albums that he actually had uh, at the, at the apartment. So we were able to take those and put them in, into the glass case. Um, And of course, on the other side of that is the memorabilia that we sell here at Birdland, the t-shirts, hats and things like that. So, yeah, those are very special to me. Those were things that Doris had given me and, uh, and I like sharing that with the public.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's it's a really a nice feeling when you walk in the door and you see that, you know, some of those original uh, original, you know, uh, I guess We're gonna artifacts. We're going to
1: have to move that case though. We're going right. to move that case. Well, that We're brings me to the next question.
0: <laughs> if if it's okay if I bring that up. Um, you know, yeah, you've you've taken in a more general sense, you've you've really done a great job with internationalizing the Birdland brand. And maybe you could talk a little bit. I know there's uh Cruises and the other club you've opened, and now of course the new the new venture uh, at Birdland itself. Um, wh-
1: wh-
0: talk a little bit about that, because that's pretty amazing how you've been doing that last few years.
1: Well, what we like to do, of course, is you know, uh, jazz is a uh, is only two percent of the music population, but we found that of that two percent that follow jazz, very loyal people, people that love this genre and uh, are very dedicated uh, so we became we partnered up with uh, uh the uh summit uh celebrity summit cruises with michael lazaroff who does a lot of the uh, jazz cruises and on the jazz cruise we have now put a well it's been about five years a birdland on the cruise and from that A lot of my artists that appear here at the club, uh, I take along on the cruise with us, which is coming up February 3rd through 10th. And we go to the Caribbean for eight days of music. There's four or five venues and we get about 100 artists on and it's a great time. The guests that come in here uh, uh, either come along on the cruise or have been on for years prior and we share a lot of memories and good times uh so it's if years ago
0: yeah no go ahead i was just gonna say it's as if uh they're they're going into the club while they're on the cruise in a way that's the idea
1: absolutely we have a beautiful room there a beautiful backdrop of birdland the logo we've got a piano sound system uh the cruise starting uh on the third in that room will be kurt elling john pizzarelli i've got Ann hampton calloway trio de paz most of these acts that play here will be playing there everyone thinks i'm going away on a vacation it really isn't (laughs) because i'm still working the room putting the artist up making sure that the sound check goes well and working but it is a little bit more relaxing and the weather's nice in (laughs) february in the caribbean (laughs) these
0: last couple weeks man it's uh it's definitely um Yeah, it's been killing so us. Two
1: years ago, in February, uh, well, the end of January, we opened up a bird's basement because it was in the lower level of a hotel in Melbourne, Australia. And so what we did was I licensed that club to a dear friend of mine. He was a musician as well. And uh, we he found this beautiful hotel, built a beautiful club, And what we do is we book one to two times a month an American artist to go and play for a week in Melbourne, Australia. So that's been very uh, satisfying and gratifying for us because we get to, of course, take our artists to a different venue. Uh, Australia is an amazing country. They love their music, their food. They love entertainment. So it's been a nice it's been a very, very uh, enjoyable uh, ex- experience for us. Uh, I have traveled back and forth about six times. It's not that easy, yeah. but I have to tell you when I do get there, it's one of the most beautiful places to be.
0: Oh, yeah. I've I've actually toured down in Australia 15 times. Uh, and wow. so I could tell you I'm a big, big fan of the country. I spent a lot of time down there. And uh, Melbourne is yeah. like the hippest city in the country anyway yeah, you is. know people know about sydney but melbourne is if you want culture and you know whatever is the cool stuff going on it's happening down there
1: it, it's like i said the, the music scene there whether it's jazz musical theater rock or pop is very strong and uh, like they love their they love going out having a cocktail listening to music it's a great city uh like i said it's It's been really a lot of fun to experience the love for our music that they have. Uh, I mean, I have experienced it in France and I experienced it in Italy because the Europeans did uh, gravitate to the jazz. They love it there. But I got to tell you, if it's Tokyo or Melbourne, there's a toss up there because both are very strong.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's cool.
1: And then my final, my final hurrah. Yes. Before I take a vacation, is opening up the lower level here in Times Square, uh, below Birdland, and we're nearing the opening date of April first.
0: That's very exciting. So tell tell me about that space for just a second, because I've been playing at the club for many years, and you know, you see in the back, heading over the back uh, backstage area, you see the staircase going down, and I never thought that there was anything really down there or knew of anything down there. And suddenly you tell me, oh, there's this construction happening. We're going to turn this into a, a space. So what when you moved in, was that space part of, of the deal? And what was going on down there when, when you got in there?
1: No, that's a New York real estate uh, situation that came up November two years ago. My lease was up for renewal. And I was going to the, I went to the owners of the building and at the point I had done 30 years at Birdland, and as I mentioned at the early onset of this interview, that I was having lunch with Max and Doris, and I said to them, I can only do this for 50 years. So when I went to the landlord, I said uh, I'd like to. Uh, they, they wanted me to. Uh, they proposed a new lease for me, and there was a 15-year lease. I said, well, I need 20 years. And they said, why? And I said, because I have a commitment to my dear friends for 50 years. And they said, well, that's fine. And we want you to stay. You've been a great tenant. Thank you. And uh, we love having you as a status point of our building. And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to stay. And they said, but we have, there's one issue that we have. The uh, lower level below you, uh, we want you to take that as well. And I go, well, really, I don't need the lower level. Uh, I'm doing fine with, with the club upstairs. I don't need to add 4,000 square feet of office space or storage. And they said, well, if you don't take it, because you're the only one that would have access to it from where you are, we have someone that will take the, the, the both floors. So, in other words, that was the New York
0: saying that. <laughs> right.
1: Thank you for the 30 years but uh, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. (laughs) Right,
0: right. They made you an offer you couldn't uh, refuse, basically.
1: Yes. So I mulled it over for a while, and I said, okay, you know what, I'll take the space. Maybe I'll make it a a, a recording studio, or maybe I'll just make it a rehearsal studio, and I'll make some offices and storage. And then the lease, of course, with the renewal of the lease, Uh, everything goes up in New York. Mm. Uh, It's not only do the buildings go high, the rents go high. So I figured I need to do something that's income producing there to offset the increase. So what happened was a small little project that I started to say, well, maybe I'll just do a little of this, a little of that, became major renovations. And I'm into a year and a half of construction and I'm about to open April 1st. But the progress is very rewarding. I'm very pleased of the results so far, and I think it's going to make a great 110-seat theater. That's where my focus is right now. As you know, our Monday nights have become very popular or because of Broadway being closed on Mondays. 15 years ago, my dear friend Jim Caruso, who you play along with every Monday, yep. uh, came to me with an idea of doing a Broadway night at Birdland, and it's been successful for 15 years. So what I was thinking, not to compete with myself at the club, that I would open up an off-Broadway or a musical theater in a the lower level, and that's the plan right now.
0: Fantastic. So, um... Do you uh, and you anticipate an April first opening down there? And and what what's really neat about it is that the uh, in the upper level of the club that's been walled off for now, I guess, a couple of months because uh, you're putting in a staircase. So so what will happen when people enter the club? How, how do they you know will, will there be well, like a separate staircase or something?
1: Yeah, you know, when you open the first door, we have a vestibule area. There are two doors from the street. You walk into the vestibule, and then there are two doors that open into the club. So we're changing those two doors that open into the club to be more secure and private. And when you'd walk into the doors from the street, directly from the street, you would make an immediate right at that display case that has the Charlie Parker uh, CDs. I mean, uh, CDs. He didn't have CDs back then. (laughs) The LPs. The LPs. that case will come out, and that staircase you would go down to the lower level, and you would enter into the new third theater.
0: Very cool. I'm I'm super excited. I've gotten to poke my head down there a couple of times, and it just looks looks really really cool uh, how it's all designed and everything. Yeah. So, uh, and maybe I'll be able to log some playing hours down there in one form or another you, as well, which would be never fun. Never
1: know. You know, that's what we want to do, especially in New York, Daniel. You know, with uh, all the people that visit, as well as all the people that live here, there are only three major jazz clubs. We need more venues. We need places for our artists who have spent their entire lives uh, alone in dark practice rooms, (laughs) becoming socially awkward, (laughs) to display their art. And uh, we're hoping that we can do that. We can give them another venue to come not only to perform in, have people come down, enjoy the ambiance of the room. I've spent many hours, as you know what I've done upstairs, to make the room comfortable, not only for the artist but for the guests. I've done likewise in the lower level. I've gone through so many different drawings, so many changes that my architect firms, I've driven them, Some of them have already quit, but it's going to be a comfortable room. It's going to be a fun room. I think that it'll be well received because it's needed. And we're steps from Broadway to be able to get musical theater, Broadway people to get an off-Broadway show right off-Broadway, literally off-Broadway. That's ideal.
0: Exactly. No, great, great idea, and you're in the perfect location for it. So, one last question for you, Johnny, and I uh, really appreciate again you taking your time today because I know you're a busy guy. Um, we, any, you know, we've talked about so many of the different artists or that so many great artists have played there. Who, who have been some of your favorites, or you know, if you can even say, uh, and maybe a story or two about you know just legendary nights at Birdland uh, that that you've experienced.
1: Well, my favorite all-time, because he was my dearest friend, we became very, very close, was the great Oscar Peterson. And uh, one story I like to tell people is uh, when after Oscar had his stroke, uh, he would face me, and one day he was looking up at me, and he had lifted his left hand onto the bass notes of the piano and he was playing, and he winked over at me. And he started looking down, and I went to the other side of the room, and I saw that he was playing with his left hand, and that was a thrill for me, because after his stroke, he still played for me, and he only used one hand, Mm. and it was amazing, because you couldn't tell the difference. But the most wonderful thing about Oscar Peterson was, uh, he was in a wheelchair at the time. He would always say to me, help me up, I don't want anybody to see my wheelchair, and he held on onto the piano and he walked along the piano and he sat down. Yeah. After every show, I would walk him off the stage and put him in the chair and walk him into the uh, and roll him into the dressing room. Every night he would do twelve shows a week. Every night we would have one hundred and fifty to two hundred people all wanted to meet him. He would say to me, "Not a problem." I said, Oscar, that's three hundred people a night. I would line up everyone." had wanted to meet Oscar Peterson. They would come into the dressing room. He would take a photo and sign anything that they brought in until everyone was gone.
0: Wow, incredible.
1: I have never met anybody who, at that time, he was hurting. I mean, he had just come off an illness. He did nothing but accommodate every single guest that walked into this room. And um, I I always remember him for that. I I love him for that. Uh, I've had many, many great experiences with with people. I remember the first time Tony Williams came in, and I came into the sound check, and it looked like one of the uh, uh, drum companies had dropped off like seven different sample sets (laughs) for you to pick out. And I looked at him, and I said, Tony. Seriously, he says, and I'm going to use every one of those things. (laughs) And he did. It was amazing. I mean, I've had, you know, like even tonight, I have my dear friend John Pizzarelli playing. I mean, John and I go back 30 years from now. Just hearing him on stage and and every, every week that he does play for a full week on Saturday nights at the end of his last show, we have a big pasta party. We bring out the pasta and the appetizers and pizza and all and fond memories. Mm. The greatest thing that I can tell you about Birdland is, first of all, I'm in, I feel, the greatest industry that one could ever imagine. And I've gotten to know the greatest artists on the planet, and not only for their music, but I've gotten to know them as people and friends. And to me, I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. If God took me tomorrow, I'd be well satisfied in where I've been in my life.
0: That's great, man. Well you do you do good work on this planet and, and I know all of us that are regulars at the club are grateful to you for uh the the very uh up upboard ship that you run and you know how, how what just a great, every week I pinch myself that I'm coming to like one of the greatest jazz clubs on the planet and I get to be there, you know, and be part of what's going on. And it's just uh it's a great experience for me for sure.
1: Well, you know, it's what we do as the owners and putting clubs together uh, is, there's a certain part that's important, but if it weren't for the artist, we wouldn't be here. So I always say, the stage is the star. It's not me. It's not the bartender. It's not the waitress. It's not the food. When it comes to the music industry, it's the artist. And without the artist, we would be nothing. So we thank you.
0: Well, great, man. Very cool. <laughs> um, and one one last quick thing. I know uh, uh, you know this is a drummer's podcast. I'm a drummer. So there's a lot of drummers listening. And I don't know if you... Have any particular drum stories or who your favorite drummers were? I know you love Steve Smith. He's in there a few times a year. Of course, Steve's a, a big uh, hero of mine and and a good friend now as well. Uh, who are some of your favorite drummers that, you, that you've seen at the club?
1: Well, I love Lewis Nash. Yeah. And of course, you named Steve Smith for me. Obed Calvert is one of my favorites. Uh, I mean, you know, it's Daniel Glass. I mean, we can get into a whole bunch yeah. of them. I love Daniel Glass. He's one of, and, and all of you listening out there, he's the only left-handed drummer that we have that comes in. We have to switch everything around. <laughs> well, that's that's my specialty.
0: I, I ruin everybody's life being a left-handed drummer. So, you know, that's what I do. That's Nate, my thing.
1: I love Nate Smith. Uh, you know, we, uh, Marcus Gilmore. I mean, we have a lot of great drummers. And you know what I really enjoy? there's a lot of young ones coming up. I mean, Roy Haynes is, of course, he's our grandfather, and we love him. And uh, Marcus Gilmore actually is his nephew. And I was asking about Roy, how he's doing, and he's still playing. I mean, there's some great, great artists out there. You know, I'm blessed to hear the best all the time. So for me, it's hard to pick and choose who's my favorite. But when I, when I speak of the ones that I've chosen, to, to, to name. Uh, they're not only great drummers, they come in with great bands, and they're great professional people to deal with, and they're a lot of fun to be around on a personal level as well. So to uh, I uh, love my artists. Great. Like I said, without them, I'd have to find another job. <laughs>
0: Well, and without you, we'd have to we'd have to uh, go play jazz elsewhere, which would not be any fun at all. So, so Johnny well, Valenti, going to be
1: around for a while.
0: yeah, at least another twenty years, I hope.
1: You got twenty at least from me.
0: <laughs> all right, Johnny Valenti, thank you so much for uh, taking your time today. It's been a really great conversation. You're and uh, hey, man, I'll see you on Monday.
1: Terrific! Thank you. Have all a right. good
0: one. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, and I just want to wrap this whole thing up by saying that if you ever get to New York City on a Monday night, shoot me an email, let me know you're coming, and I'll make sure to let you know if I'm at Birdland. Generally, I am there every Monday of the year that I am not on the road, out of town, or otherwise engaged on another gig. Cast Party goes 52 weeks of the year. Every Monday night, we start about 930 And it's a really fun, entertaining, hilarious, great night and a true New York experience you are not likely to find anywhere else. So I invite you all to come and join me at the Jazz Corner of the World, Birdland. Have a great one and I'll see you next time around on The Daniel Glass Show.